0: If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Um, we're going to be in First John. We're continuing our series uh, about stability. Um, John writing to a bunch of people uh, that he cares about, that he loves. He calls them little children. He calls them his beloved. So it's people that he knows and loves and cares about. <clears throat> and he's writing to them. Uh, because they are going through a difficult season, a season that feels very uh, destabilizing because people that they know, people that they love, people they're close to, have gone out from them. We know this from the letter and how he writes. They've left the church uh, and are believing different things, and it's causing just great confusion, great instability, and a great great struggle in their lives. And so... um, we're going to continue that study this morning. We're going to be in First uh, John chapter two. We'll start in verse 18 in a second. Uh, so here's the thing: I realize that there are times I want Christianity to be um, more focused, maybe simpler. Is the idea that I'm looking for? Uh, that I would like for it to be, I guess, let me say this way the longer that I live the Christian life, the longer that I study, the more that I learn and experience with the other brothers and sisters in Christ, with you guys, uh, the more I realize how deeply pervasive, how penetrating. Uh, the gospel is, how it seems to want to invade every single part of my life, my thinking and my feeling and all of these things. And I, I really think for the most of my life, I've wanted it to just be more an intellectual ascent. Like, why do we have to drag my feelings into all this? Like, why do my feelings have to fall under God's lordship? Why do I have to even examine that? Because I'm not really good at it in the first place. Why do how I, my relationships, why, why do all these things have to fall underneath? Why does God declare the lordship over those as well? Can it just be this mental acknowledgement? Not only that, I think that I've wanted it to be at times to be clear clear there's a lot of mystery in the bible there's a lot of mystery in god and i think that at times i just like i want an answer to this question could it please be clear and i fall into the trap of saying like here's the thing that i believe and then finding places in scripture where this hard statement i've made seems all of a sudden very unwise Uh, I think that I've wanted those things. But the truth is uh, that because of the depth, because of the richness, because of the beauty, because of the mystery, because of its pervasiveness, it presents a beautiful picture, a beautiful way of living the Christian life. uh, That... Perhaps the parts of me that want this clear answer are really broken. Perhaps the emotional things, the things that I want to keep away from God because I just really don't know how to even deal with them, perhaps those are the parts of me that most need redemption, that most need healing, that most need resurrection, right? There's parts of me that need redemption that I don't even want to talk about and deal with. So it's just very complicated and very mysterious. It's not so much just, hey, believe this, this didactic thing. Often it's so much more than that. But today, today in 1 John, there is, John is writing and he just, he writes this very simple thing here's a thing that you need to believe. He makes what I'm going to call, what we would call a doctrinal assertion. Here's a fact that you have to believe, and the people that have gone out from us do not believe this, and they're not a part of it. Let me read it to you. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 18. Children, or beloved little ones, it's the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies That Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son and has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life there are parts of christianity that are clear there are intellectual facts that we have to accept and that's what john is acknowledging, is bringing out uh, out today we have to believe christians have to believe that uh that jesus Is the Christ? Uh, We are not allowed to dismiss. I think there's a temptation in in some circles to say, "Well, we can't be too firm about everything. We need to be. There needs to be some kind of uh, way for each of us to experience this differently." But John says there's some things that just have to be accepted as fact if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, and one of them is this: Jesus is the Christ. We can't dismiss it as just cold intellectualism in favor of some kind of emotional experience. This is just a doctrinal truth. It's primary. One of the reasons we say the Apostles' Creed each week is that there are these primary Christian doctrines that we just have to tell ourselves that we believe. That we have to remind ourselves that we believe. That we tell each other that this is what we believe. That we declare to be these things to be true. You have to believe that Jesus was the Christ. And John says what he tells us what he means by this. He says that. Jesus is God come in the flesh. There are people who are denying this and they are not to be a part. They're not to be believed. They're part that's it's a lie. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This basic fundamental Christian doctrine. Sometimes when we come to these texts, you come to a place in scripture, uh, even if it's a thing that we think we have a handle on, a thing that we believe, that we know, it's excellent to just rehearse it this morning we're going to talk about this basic fundamental truth that jesus is the christ the messiah the promised one it is that simple that's what we're going to talk about if you're new here uh anyone who's been here for a very long time just got a little nervous inside they just kind of like tightened up inside because they're like "Mm -mm, this is definitely a trap but it's not It's not, it's that simple we're talking about the fact Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. That is the simple reality of what we will be dealing with today. So, but before we do that, let's talk about some of these terms. Because you probably have questions. If you grew up in church like I did, if you're about my age, uh, there are two things in here that were the stuff of, just these two elements were the stuff of, just these two words, made just a horrifying Movie or Bible study on end times, right? The last days in the Antichrist. This is just, this is stuff of nightmares, right? This is why you threw away all your Dungeons and Dragons posters at your friend's house. Like, this is it, man. This is the scary stuff. So here's the deal be comforted that we're not going to answer all of your questions. We're not going to get into all of this, but we do at least need to talk about, like, what is John talking about? We at least need to kind of get a sense of why he's mentioning this stuff. Uh, the last hour is for John. I, we don't know exactly what he means, but we know, I have a general idea of what he means. The last hour would be for John, the time between, and, and for his listeners, the time between the Advents The arrivals of Jesus. So he came one time in the flesh, right, to earth, uh, in time and space. He came as a baby, and he lived a life walking the dusty streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And he died a death on a cross, rose again, and he ascended into heaven where he is today, sitting at the right hand of God as a person. That was his first advent. Then he's promised he's going to come again. So the last hours that John's talking about, the last days, would be in that. There's just the time in between those two arrivals of Jesus. Or uh, another way to think about it, if you think of history in, in, in like periods, this is the last period of human history before heaven invades. This is the last season. This is the kind of final revelation of God's plan to redeem. that started way back in Genesis when he looked at the snake, and he looked at Adam and Eve and said, I have a plan. I have a plan, and it's going to be the descendant of this woman. I'm going to defeat the snake. I'm going to defeat sin. I'm going to defeat death and hell. I'm going to defeat it all through a descendant of this woman. This is the revelation. So now we're in the last days. We're in the last hours. We're in the last season of this plan. When God has revealed what he is going to do, this uh, remarkable passage this guy named uh, Newman said the way to think about it is this that uh, a way of, kind of to visualize this idea is that when Jesus came history kind of took a turn it, it was such a monumental thing in what God was doing all of history is headed towards the final judgment day and then when Jesus arrives there's this turn and now it runs along parallel this this edge, where the edge is uh, the invasion of eternity, when, when this edge is that final day of judgment. And so now it's just running along parallel, that at any time, at every time, at every moment of the day, in John's day there was an urgency, in our day there's an urgency, because Christ's return is always just inches away we don't know why. And we know that he can extend the time for, for good reason. Uh, Peter, writing a letter uh, to some people, he wrote this amazing thing. He says that God may extend the time. He's slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He extends this time running along close that eternity could come in at any time. But he says it this way, and he talks about these things to press on us the urgency. And Christ said the same thing, uh, that there is time and there is reason to be urgent, to be vigilant, to always be on guard, and to be ready at all times. There was an urgency and then he says this, he talks about the Antichrist, he says there's an urgency, he's talking about the urgency, and he says, uh, we know at the last hours, uh, and that you've heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John's the only person that mentions Antichrist. He's the only one that uses that terminology. Uh, uh, But it kind of, the idea shows up in other places, uh, in just other, you know, Revelation notably, uh, referring back to some of the prophecies in the Old Testament, Daniel specifically. But there's, John's the only one that uses the notion of Antichrist, and even Antichrists. Right? Uh, And he mentions them, and and he says what he's talking about. He says that These antichrists are those that deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, those that oppose the true teaching about Christ. And so he could mean two things right here. He could mean uh, people and forces and things and ideas that oppose Christ, that that, that deny Christ is who he was and said he was, that he came in the flesh. Or the antichrist could be uh, people or things or ideas or, or anything that really that wants to take the place that Christ should hold, Right? One that says, no, that's not really who he is, and one that says, no, really, you should give me the attention that you give him, right? These things that stand opposed to Christ or stand in the place that Christ should stand. That's what he says He says he's ta- when he talks about the antichrists. He's talking about these people that uh, are things that are putting themselves in a place of authority. And, and here's the deal. I'm not, that doesn't mean that, that there's not going to be something at the end time. It doesn't mean that... Um, Look, when I was growing up, I was very, very worried about the end times, like almost constantly. Uh, I mean, I mostly blame Frank Peretti, but uh, uh, he wrote these books about like angels and demons. It was just really crazy stuff. It's fine, but you you just were constantly worried about it. I mean, we didn't change the way we lived, but we were worried about it, right? Like we were. Also, at the same time, we didn't change the way we lived, even though we were worried about it, because that's out there, right? It's been two thousand years, probably another two thousand. Right? We did, there was no sense of urgency, but I lived worried about it constantly. And so I think what John is saying, he's not denying anything that Jesus is going to return. He's not denying any of the judgment. He's not denying any of those things. But he's almost saying there's something more pressing than that. That among you, there are those that deny Christ. I think you need to be more worried about that. Don't be so much worried about these end-time things that you can't control that that really don't even make sense, that we don't understand, we have a vision for, but we don't know. Uh, Maybe spend less time worried uh, uh, about the number 666 and more time worried about the things in your own life and around you that deny Christ as the Savior, right? Does that make sense? So that's what I think he's driving at. At least that's what he's saying right now. And so this is what he says about the Antichrist. He says, they went out from us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So there were people among them who at one time maybe professed to be followers of Jesus, professed the things that were true, and they maybe changed their mind or or begin to believe something different, or or, or maybe they just begin to deny altogether the thing they had professed from the beginning. Uh, They um, looked like church family at one time, right? But John says they no longer are. And he says you can tell because they are not with us anymore. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, if they were like us, if they'd been family like us, they wouldn't have left the faith. They would have stayed with us. But we can tell that since they left, that they didn't know the truth. They didn't know the reality. They aren't part of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, and they're going out, and they're departing from the faith that John taught, departing from the things that John taught about Jesus, that he had touched him, that he had known him, that he was in relationship with the Father, that he was because of his relationship with Jesus. These people are denying that, and they're leaving, John says, has a purpose. It makes clear that they weren't part of us. And so he says that it's important that we know this. People that possibly professed faith at one time but have left believe something about Jesus, but maybe not that he was God. And John says they're not part of us. They've abandoned the confession possibly even altogether. So here's the deal. In John's day, that would have been pretty clear who he was talking about, right? He's writing a letter, and they would have been able to name names, right, uh, that have been to their church. So in John's time, probably what we're talking about is a good chance, based on some of the research, uh, that people begin to believe uh, other ideas, Platonic ideas, other philosophies had kind of invaded uh, into Christianity. It's really popular to, like, take Christianity and then try to mix it into the things that you already believed. So probably what was being mixed in with Christianity that people were believing is something called Gnosticism. You don't need to write that down, but it starts with a G if you're uh Gnosticism it has to do with knowledge, right? And uh, so these people would mix in the idea that you had to know certain things, believe certain things in a certain way. Uh, and one of the things that they would have maintained was the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good. So there's no way that God could have become flesh. How can something that is good, God, become something flesh that's bad? They would have denied it. Can't happen. Or they would have denied, how can God come and suffer? How can Jesus be God? He suffered. You maintain that he suffered. How can God suffer? Suffering causes change and God can't change. They would have mixed these ideas in. And so maybe they begin to drift away from this acknowledging what John seems to see, see as absolutely critical. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died. They begin to deny this. And John makes such a big deal and says, listen, these people who are denying this can't be part of us. There's no way they can be part of us because it is critical to what John teaches. It is critical to Christianity. It's critical to being a disciple of Jesus that we don't demythologize, that we don't say, well, yeah, Jesus was a good person. And, and he was from God and he, and, he, and he told us good things, but he, didn't, he wasn't really God himself that, that came and died. And John says, "Can't do that. It's absolutely critical." It, it, basically, what John is saying is, it is such a dire situation that we find ourselves in as humans, as slaves of, uh, slaves to sin and slaves to death. That these are things that we're all having to deal with. That it's such a dr- drastic, just horrible situation that we find in, ourselves in. That to deny that Christ came in the flesh, to deny that God took this dramatic, loving act, is basically to say there's another way. And John's saying, there's no other way. It has to be through this Christ. The way that you know the Father is by knowing this Christ. And we knew him. I knew him. I I, I touched him. I put my head on his chest. I knew him. And to deny that is saying, you know what? I I don't really need God to have invaded time and space to rescue me. There's got to be a different way. And John says, hey, that's not Christianity. That's not what we taught. That's not what we believe. It is not true. I don't know what it is you believe, but it's not what we believe drastic measures in coming to save us. Now, here's the deal. I think it would be a legitimate question for you to ask at this point, what does that have to do with us today, right? Like, I mean, I don't know when the last time you met a Gnostic was, but I haven't crossed one recently. It's not a thing. People aren't sitting there. I don't think, like, you never probably, like, sat down with your friend who wanted to talk about Jesus, and he's like, I don't know, how can God become flesh? And, like, I don't think that's a thing that happens so much anymore. So what does this have to do with us today? I think that... I I think the principle behind what John is talking about is something that we absolutely still encounter. And maybe we could say, listen, I don't encounter it in the church. I can understand that we would encounter it outside of the church. Uh, People who say things like, Jesus is just a great teacher, but I can't believe in miracles. uh, They're basically saying, I'm not that bad. I don't really need someone to come and rescue me. He was a good teacher. I just try to follow teachers. It's a denial of the brokenness and the need. Uh, people who uh, accuse Christianity of being being incredibly exclusive. I don't know if you've encountered those people. Oh, like it's only through Jesus. How do you know it's your way? I think maybe just because you were raised that way, maybe that's why you believe that, which I have to, like, I get so upset when someone says that to me. I'm like, are you saying that no matter what you grew up believing has to be wrong so nobody can know truth at all? It's a stupid thing to say out loud. And I have to not say that out loud. I have to control myself. But also at the same time, recognizing that, Christianity, yes, it claims exclusivity in the sense that Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the way. It is exclusive in that way. But, man, in its exclusivity, it is the most inclusive way to live that I can think of. Because, and here's why. Here's why. Because Christianity in no way excludes moral failures. Like any other way to find God, to find transcendence, to find something else, it has to exclude moral failures, right? I mean, if I don't really need rescuing and I can just achieve it on my own, what about those of us who are deeply morally flawed? I mean, think about a faith. Think about a religion. Think about a way of living. Think about a God who says, the way to me does not matter at all whether you are morally bankrupt. You can still come. There Being a moral failure is absolutely nothing to stop you from coming to God. That's how inclusive Christianity is. But it is the way, the truth, the life coming through Jesus only. But it says that there is hope for any of us. I think sometimes, I don't don't think we realize how much of our thinking that we can just be good people on our own comes from... The way that we were brought up, right? I don't think that we think about how much uh, thinking that we can just be a good person is built from our own understanding of what it means to be a good person. The the idea that if we were born somewhere in another part of town, we would uh, another part of town or another part of the world or another time and space that we would somehow be the same moral people that we are today—that's silly. But the Bible says it is so inclusive that does not matter what you've done. You can come to Christ. You can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. All right, so that is people outside of us that make those accusations that that may be denying that Christ is the reality, but I think that we encounter it even closer to home than that, and it can be pretty dangerous. Um, Let me give you some examples that I have seen recently. Uh, There is a movement called Exvangelical, I have movements loose. People that call themselves ex-evangelicals. And instead of being evangelical, they just added the ex. It's people who have left the church that they grew up in. They've left the faith of their youth. There's some pretty notable ones, uh, pretty famous ones. Sons of like well-known pastors... Daughters of well-known pastors that have left the faith and now criticize it. Critical. And usually what you see when you encounter these uh, ex-evangelicals is typically it's always the same exact path, by the way. It's kind of, um, at this point, it's really clear and almost boring, and I feel bad for them with that. But uh, what you find is they take real hurts, real wounds, and real errors in the church and blow it out of proportion, and make it Christianity's fault that those things happened. Does that make sense? Something happened inside the church, and they go, look, this happened to me in church, and my heart breaks for you because awful things have happened inside of churches before. Churches have created serious wounds in in the way that people think, in the way people feel, and and actually done real harm. And they take those things and say, this is not an abnormality, this is not the result of Of human beings being terrible and flawed, this is the result of Christianity itself, and you can tell them because it's always with a mocking, dismissive tone. It's not; it's never a new argument, right? It's never. Every time they say a thing, I'm like, people have been criticizing that Christianity for two thousand years. We have lots of answers for that. Would you like the books on it? There's a whole library, right? Uh, So it's it's not that. But here's the thing: here's why I bring it up. Uh, Because in social media, these things are huge. If you have a child on TikTok, they have encountered this. This mocking the faith. Because it's you're taking something real and creating a platform out of twisting that and mocking it just plays well to the culture that we live in right now. And so I, I bring it up because it's people who have left the faith, who have gone out from us, that we will encounter and sometimes say, I too have experienced the thing that you're describing and then doubts begin to creep in and we must be on guard that these are counter to Christ. Yeah, the church is flawed and it breaks my heart. And you know what? We should be held to a higher standard, right? But God's goodness to us in Christ has not changed and will not change. And any assertion otherwise is counter to the reality and the truth of Jesus. Uh, there's another crowd uh, that I think that maybe we encounter. Uh, you probably know these people. Uh, I'm going to call them the uh, only Jesus can judge me crowd. You know those people? Uh, only Jesus can judge me. Uh, that means I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, usually it's code for I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't care what you think about it. right uh it is um another version of i'm a good person and who how dare you say otherwise only jesus can judge me uh it's another way of just saying all that matters is that i'm good Uh, i believe this and i just want to go like do you though Like, like, shouldn't it make a change in who you are if you actually believe that? Uh, um, another uh, Another version that you will encounter in your daily life, people that you know and work with are spiritual without God, people. Well, I'm spiritual, but, you know, I don't believe there's a God. People looking and seeking transcendence, something beyond them, recognizing that this can't be all there is. There's a place in my soul that longs for more. So, yeah, I'm spiritual, but, you know, without God or church. Right? It's people that often left the church and will say things like this. Like, man, it was really after I left the church that I really, you know, in my own personal study, really found God. And I'm like, ah, I really have a hard time believing that you encounter Jesus apart from his body. I'm not saying that you can encounter Jesus apart from his body. I'm saying the primary way that he is designed for us to do it, this is a better way to say it. The primary way he is designed for us to encounter Jesus is in communion with his with our brothers and sisters, with his children, that they point us to this. Otherwise, what I have a tendency to do is to take this and kind of make of it whatever I want. And so the spiritual without God people uh, are really just saying, you know what, I don't really need Jesus embodied in the church. I don't really need Jesus to tell me what to do. I'm just seeking a thing that makes me feel a certain way. And I think we encounter that, and it's a temptation that we face. Let me tell you another one that I heard recently, very recently. (laughs) I'm going to call this uh, mushy thinking. It's people who say things like, or this type of thinking, I'm not mocking these people. It's a a very real idea that I think is out there, uh, that say things like, you know what? I don't want to put anything on my kids. I want them to discover for themselves. I don't want to force my faith on them. I want that to grow up in them. I just don't want to press all of my thinking on them. I believe these things, but I don't want to put it on them. Here's my problem with that. So you're not going to teach them to read? You're just going to let them discover that on their own? Well, no, I'm going to teach them to read but not math. You teach them like two plus two, whatever they discover on their own is two plus two. They're going to find. Well, no, I'm going to teach them math. Like running red lights. They can just do whatever they want with. No, no, I'm going to teach them those. So just about whether or not Jesus died and rose from the dead, that's the only thing that you're not going to teach them. Isn't that just a denial that Jesus is who he said he is, that he actually came in the flesh and died and rose again. and is going to come back one day. Isn't that kind of antichrist? denial of his reality, and there's a temptation for us to believe that. That is the predominant thinking of a lot of people in the world that we live in and the city that we live in. And we need to be aware of it. It's not just something out there that's kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. It's anti-Christ. And we should be aware of it and we should be on guard on that type of thinking and so that we know how to pray, so that we know how to live, so we know how to guard our own hearts, and so we know how to minister in love. I think the way, though, perhaps the thing that we need to be most aware, if the Antichrist is this usurper, the one who comes under false pretenses, assumes a position to which uh, he has no right, uh, this resolutely opposes the rightful owner of that place in our heart, Jesus, that place in the world, Jesus, uh, that deception has to be detected and it has to be opposed in every single place that we encounter it. I mean, because if you believe a thing, right? If you believe a thing in the way the Bible talks about believing a thing, if you believe a thing in the way the Bible talks about faith, I mean, it has to change you, right? There's actually a verse that says, so you believe in Jesus? Like the demons even believe in Jesus and tremble. What they're saying is like, oh, I believe? Oh, you believe? It, that's not the same thing. The, the biblical notion of belief is, I believe a thing and I change. Apparently the demons can believe that Jesus is who he says he is and still refuse him lordship. They can say, yeah, I know Jesus. He rose from the dead. Yeah, I know him. He's son of God. But I will still live for me. That is the idea and that is the notion of these things opposed to Christ as Lord. Real belief actually results in Jesus as John describes him, as John tells us, as he is revealed, as he really is. It actually is going to have to lead to transformation, right? It has to. Acknowledging him as Lord and Savior has to change. That means that there can actually be places in our lives, in our hearts, in our thinking, in how we feel about things, that we deny him access. Where we give someone something, some attitude, some desire, the place in our heart that Jesus should rightfully occupy, in our thinking that Jesus should rightfully occupy occupy, we believe the lie that something is better than Jesus. Wouldn't that be Antichrist? Wait, Antichrist in me. Ooh, I knew it was a trap. Yeah. The idea that we believe notions that are anti-Christ against him in our own heart and places that we live, that is a thing that John also wants us to be aware of. Places in our hearts where we deny him lordship. Hey, you know what? You can have my thinking, but how, my feeling about this person over here, I just can't forgive him. And Jesus says, no, that's mine too. Stop, stop thinking that way. You're believing a lie that that wound is so deep I can't heal it. And that's anti-who I am. I can heal that wound. Hey, you know what? I believe, uh, I believe in Jesus, and I want him to be Lord of my life, and he can have my emotions, but there's just some things that I just can't accept that are written in here. And Jesus says, I just need you to stop believing that you can think through these things and your existence better than me. I promise you, you're just believing a lie. I'm worried that we've all bought into, or it's easy for us to buy into the beer commercial version of life and miss out on a deep and rich reality promised to us in the scripture. The places in our heart that we do not surrender. And Jesus says, give me the places, give me the hurts, give me the things that you've done. I can't give him what I've done. I, 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 yeah, I know that I'm forgiven, but I'm just gonna carry this around and feel this about guilty about this anyway. Believing the lie that there's a thing that he can't forgive me for. Yes, I know mentally I I'll acknowledge that I'm forgiven for this. It says that, yes, but I'm gonna carry this around and act out of this guilt anyway places in our heart that deny him lordship no even that is mine and we believe the lie that we have to carry around punishing ourselves over and over again for the end for a thing that we've done and he said listen to me don't you know that i came in the flesh and died on the cross and at the very end i said it is finished the debt is paid that's not yours anymore it's mine and we believe the lie that we are the worst thing that we've ever done and Jesus, John is saying, you do not have to believe that. There's a better way to live, and we need to drive those places that are anti-Jesus' lordship over our suffering, over our future, over our finances, over our relationships, over forgiveness, over being forgiven, and drive them out of our heart. And it's just insidious. It's everywhere. You know who I struggle to, the people that I just naturally struggle to love Everybody has people they naturally struggle to love. Usually, they're the people most, most like us. Here's who I love, struggle to love. You make a few hundred thousand dollars a year, beautiful family, beautiful life, and you still can't seem to pull it together. Man, that drives me insane. There's a part of my soul that just wants to go, pull it together. Pull it together. The rest of humanity is looking at you going like, wait, what? You've never wondered where your next meal's coming from and you can't be happy? What is wrong with you? And I get it. I get that in my heart and I get angry. I get frustrated about it. I'm like, what? why can't you just pull it together? And it's wrong of me to think that. There's an article that came out. I saw Actually, you know, I just read the headlines and dismissed it completely. Uh, the, art, the headline said, if Bill and Melinda Gates can't make it, what hope do we have? That was the headline. The idea being that one of the richest couples that have ever lived on the face of this earth, one of the richest people who people, people have ever lived, if they can't make their marriage work and they get divorced, how in the world could we make it work? And I read that into my brain. I thought that's a stupid thing to f- write down. What a stupid thing to write down. Money doesn't help you. Money doesn't. Save. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that you might have more problems coming to Christ and trusting him and following him and living out kingdom values, living out kingdom ways. The more money you have, the more success you have, the harder it might actually be. And I said all that and then still struggle to people that can't pull it together. Why? Because I acknowledge one thing true here, but in my heart I believe that if I just had enough money and enough time and had everything just right, then I would have it all together too. And I'm denying Christ that place in my heart. denying him lordship. When he says, I'm denying him lordship and saying, hey, I've given you what you need to live for me, to follow me. I've given you what you need to one day at the end of your very short life compared to eternity, when eternity invades time and space, I've given you what you need to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you think if you just had a little more, you'd be okay. It's anti, it's denying that Jesus is what I need. It's believing the lie that if I just had a little more, everything would be okay. If I could just do this, just have this, if this person wouldn't do that, I would be okay. We have to embrace in all of our life and all of our thinking, driving out the lies and embracing the reality and the beauty of Jesus. Here's how John says you know this. This has happened to you. Uh, They went out from us, but they were not from us. They went out, that it might be plain, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have knowledge. This is what he says. He says, you know this. You don't believe the lies. You are fighting the lies in your heart because God has placed his Holy Spirit in you. This is what I want to say. If you have found yourself in a place where you have questions and you've wondered and you've been hurt and you've struggled and you've been tempted to believe these lies or maybe you're currently believing believing them, but you're still showing up. You're still trying to trust Jesus and you're still holding on to, tight as you can, be encouraged. And my encouragement to you is this. Keep hanging on, keep believing, keep reading, keep investigating, keep hanging on until one day you realize that you're really not hanging on that tight. Jesus is hanging on to you. That he, if you were his, he is holding you close. I've seen people go through what I would consider the mildest of suffering and struggles and abandon the faith because how could God be this way? And I've seen people go through the worst things that I could possibly imagine and cling even tighter. And I've wondered what in the world is the difference? And it's one of them is of us and one of them was not. Hold on, hold on, hold on until you realize it's really him holding on to you that he is holding you tight, that he's placed his spirit inside of you, that he loves you, that he is keeping you close, and it will make you love him all the more. This is it. This is what we do. Every day, seeding ground in our heart, in our thinking, in our lives to Jesus, because one day he's coming for it anyway. This is the way we live out the kingdom. This is how we can be sure that that we have what he promised because he is holding on to us by his spirit. Applying what Christ has done already to us now. This is it. This is how we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the reality that it's not dependent on me. I don't have to accomplish all of these things because I can't. I fail over and over and over again. But in Jesus, you have given us all things. May he take the proper place in this church. May he take the proper place in our heart. May he take the proper place in our thinking, in our feeling, in our doing, in our actions. May he take the proper place of Lord in all of those things. Because otherwise we're just believing a lie that something is better. And it's not. It's not. You're way is what we were designed for. Your way, there are promises, there's life everlasting, there's eternity, there's so much more available to us than our puny little eyes can even dream of. In all situations, to be deeply satisfied because of who you are and what you've done. Change us. Work in our hearts. We may see you as beautiful, may we understand that you are holding on to us, that we are yours. I thank you for those that you are holding on to, and not the encouragement that they are to me. I thank you for your table where we are reminded the price that was paid and the depth of your love for us. You are God, and you are good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.